This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willer for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to MM Plays. Tonight we talk about how to make the theme of the game work for you. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. Cool, we are here. We are here to record a episode of podcast for you all. But first, let's do some announcements, which we don't really have any announcements, so I suppose we should just talk about another show on the Misdirected Mark Podcast Network. We could always talk about another show on the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tell me about it, Bob. Uh, I'm going to poke the Gnomecast again this week, because the Gnomecast is important. Several gnomes from Gnomes do, they, they like to get together, and they, they talk about gaming topics. They also talk about themselves, but they do it because they want to entertain you and they want to avoid getting thrown in the stew pot because nobody wants to get thrown in the stew pot. You know, I've started this movement over at the stew where I'm like, why are we recording right by the stew pot? We should really just move the recording studio to the other side of the gnome tree. You think, right? I, you could. I, I, why do we do that? Why doesn't the Death Star have railings? Uh, uh, like, yeah, that's my point. Aren't we smarter than the Empire? Aren't we smarter than the Empire? You would think. Yeah. Young man. We have OSHA. Do you think you're smarter than the Empire? Is that a joke? I don't even know where that's from. It's the young man Einstein got divorced three times. Do you think you're smarter than Einstein? <laughs> All right. Well, we should move on to our main segment then, which is making your genre and theme work for you. Hit the workshop right now. Workshop, workshop, genre and theme. Jump into it. Make it work for you by getting into the game, figuring out what the genre is and the theme, and then taking it all together and working it towards your character so that you'll have a better time with the game and the game master. And don't suck. Don't suck. It was pretty good. A little more Get growl. A yeah. little more growl when you uh when you do it. Your your intensity <laughs> kind of fell off. Yeah, your intensity you fell a little <laughs> while. Was, like, all of a sudden I like, lost yeah. my all of a sudden I lost all the oxygen in my lungs. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's not an easy, it's not as easy as it looks. I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm rather vindicated in this moment. What, what sucks is that what sucks is our, our practice one went better. Um, it's okay. anyway, performance anxiety is what it is. If you notice, I always take a deep breath right before we, before we hit that. Cause it is a lot. I, I will have to take more deep breaths. <laughs> like I said before, we're talking, we're talking about making your genre and theme work for you. So I have a thesis statement and then we will discuss the thesis statement. So some people are probably going to think this is a little bit highbrow for your role-playing games, but I am a big fan of taking theme and taking your genre and making it a core part of your role-playing game experience. And I believe it provides the following benefits. One, creates consistency of storytelling throughout a scene, a session, and a campaign. Two, helps in setting scenes. Three, gives direction to character choices, both for GM characters and player characters. Four, allows GMs and players to create issues, problems, dramatic moments, you know, all that stuff that are conflict points for our game in both prep and at the table on the fly. And this can be both for both players and game masters. And five, I think it helps in designing rules or house rules to get the right feel for your game and, you know, prepping your adventures too. We're going to dive into these a bit more, but first let's hit some definitions so we can focus our conversation because that's always a good thing to do. Definition Panda. So hit me, Definition Panda. Behold, you are in the presence of Definition Panda. Sure, let's talk about theme, right? Theme is an idea or set of ideas that reoccurs um, or pervades the game. Uh, if you're going with Jason Pitt's uh, terminology, theme and subtext are 
often interchangeable here. And then we've got genre, right? Genre is a category of artistic composition in music or literature characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. But as we've established in previous episodes, role-playing games are also artistic composition. Yes, they're a version of that. Correct. Going back to something that you mentioned off mic earlier, what is the theme is of like B2, the Keep on the Borderlands? What's the theme of that game? First of all, I mean, you're talking about a really old, oh man, mm-hmm. talk about a really old game, but I think one of the prevailing themes, right, is exploration. Okay. Because it is just a set of catacombs. None of them are interconnected with one another. They're all weird and different. And it's like, here's a whole place for you to go. And the keep is there to, hey, here's where you can get more provisions if you need to like stock up before you continue your exploring. Thank you. I think I will also say that maybe... Maybe just maybe back then in the in the old days of game design and writing these adventures, there probably wasn't much of a theme going on. I'm with you. I'm just not consciously. But but the, but I think Phil hit the nail on that. I think it's also probably mostly good versus evil a little bit. Would that be a theme for that game? I don't know. Because you're trying to invade the caves of chaos to stop them from overtaking the keep. Yeah. Is that why people do that? Yeah. How many people knew that? <laughs> I Is just it? knew there was treasure. It's a rumor in the town. And I wasn't sure. I'm just saying that's something I no. think it's because even a simple game like that has a, th- what I guess I'm pointing out is even a simple game like that had a theme. And I think Phil nailed it. Colonialism. That's a theme. Colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. We start talking about those older games. Like there's a lot of that going on there, even if, if it wasn't intended. Right. That's the unintended theme of that game. Or maybe it wasn't and, unintended. And then you but... have to decide whether it's colonialism or it's good versus evil. Right. Because if those things are inherently evil, but then we get into the idea of like our, people of a certain species inherently evil right and Which that's is, where that's, that's a theme a, a, in fantasy literature though sure and when we get to yeah. that is where we start to run into what becomes problematic and all yeah. that stuff also true when we start painting things with wide brushes and making big general statements like that yeah but i don't know i mean i'm, I'm telling you from because i haven't played b2 in forever but exploration was the one i remember can i just say it's funny because i don't disagree with you right like i i, I it's it's a problem but it was just easier a lot of times back in the day to, to paint things with wide brushes. Cause like the whole idea of Superman is like, I can solve a simple, I can solve any problem by just punching it. it, it it's a different kind of idea, but it's the idea of I'm going to paint this one thing with a wide brush. So here's the thing. I, and I'm no expert in this and we should want, we should get off this topic as quick as possible. But I will say this. I think it's problematic when you say all orcs are evil, but if you just took a bunch of orcs, some humans, some goblins, and you were like, this is the cult of the dark star or whatever. Yeah, uh, 100% say, agree. These guys are all evil. I don't have a, like, I don't think that's the, like, those are two different things. Because they do yeah. evil things, right? Because they do evil things. Yes. I think that's why Village of Hamlet works better as a starting adventure, because in that one, very specifically, the moat house is the outpost for the cult of the gods of elements yeah. or whatever it is. They're definitely the evil bad guys. So the, the actual problematic content is where like this whole, classification of people are evil mm-hmm. correct and that's, i'm with you yeah so unless should, of course yeah. unless of course they're nazis well, yeah but that, but also but that's that's that an organization evil, yeah. that's an organization yeah. right like the nazi party correct right? so at this point we should stop because this is not one of those places where we are experts and we should get no. back onto genre and we should probably uh tie these into our children of the shroud game perhaps let's talk about genre for our children of the shroud game which is swashbuckling magical high school so that is a genre that we've stuck very tightly to when it comes to our games. For the few people who haven't been listening to the AP and listen to us, we kind of pick those semi-randomly. 
I think I showed you guys a list and you guys just kind of picked through it. And so the trick was each one of those things, magic, swashbuckling, and high school are a genre by themselves. Mm -hmm. Correct. Any one of those is a genre. Sort of, kind of. I mean, which one isn't? Magical, I guess, is your... Correct. Also high school. Like uh, high school storytelling is the same thing as like almost saying like comic books or, or superheroes. Mm, or agreed, fantasy. Agreed. You'd, you'd have to ask some further questions yeah. to get further down. But by using the three genres mixed together, we made a like unique genre yeah. out of it, which is somewhat tricky. I don't know if we want to get into this point yet, but it gets somewhat tricky because each one of those things has some genre conventions, right? Swashbuckling means we're going to do some sort of dueling or sword or weapons play. Magical has like, we should be able to do spells. There should be magic creatures of magic, magic shit, items, things like that. And then high school is going to be things like high school events, high school social structures, classes, tests, proms, all of those things. The thing that it really does is it sets an age range for the characters mm -hmm. and it sets a setting for the characters more so than the other two. It doesn't, it doesn't, right? Because you could have all been teachers in that high school. Sure, but that's still a setting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What becomes interesting is then what is magical swashbuckling high school as a genre? Essentially, we kind of just pulled from each of the micro genres, right? Each of the individual genres to make up a genre unto itself. We even refined it more than that because swashbuckling and magical high school can mean a whole bunch of different things too. But then we went, well, we're going to set it in the real world. Then we're yep. going to make it a, uh, a hidden magical world, which is yes. a, a subgenre of all this stuff anyway. Yep, absolutely. And then we're going to make it about high school kids that are living in this society that is hidden, but they know all about it. Mm -hmm. We've now super narrowed down <laughs> into our genre uh, and put on some more classifiers on top of it. Yeah. We've created a box for ourselves is what we've done. That's, that's how I see it anyway. No, I agree. I agree. I just remember at the early part when I was kind of prepping and starting to think about what was I going to run or how I was going to run this game, a lot of it um, centered around which tropes am I going to access from each of those genres. Mm -hmm. Like I knew early on, as soon as we said, as soon as we said high school, I was like, well, there's going to be a prom. Like, like I'm going to like, I, <laughs> that trope is coming whenever, like when we get to it, that trope is going to happen. Sure. Right. For swashbuckling, you actually had to go build a mechanic to help enforce that genre. Yeah. Cause dueling is a thing, right? Yeah. In swashbuckling, you'd watch it, watch any pirate movie, you watch any musketeers movie. There's, there's generally some sort of dueling that goes on during those movies or those stories. Then you go to theme. We didn't really discuss our themes before our session beforehand or in our session zero, but we just, we talked about it a little bit earlier because I wanted to make sure I got some consensus, but these are very much coming of age stories for our characters. We are teenagers growing up and maturing in this magical hidden society. That is one of the themes of the game. There are some other ones that we, there is another one, at least another primary one. Phil, you want to tell the folks about it? And again, you're hundred percent correct, right? These were kind of emerging themes, but magical legacy, like all three of you, all three of your characters have some sort of magical legacy. And in, in, um, in T's case, right. His is got the, like he's, he comes from a, a pretty well-to-do magical family who turns out to be like pretty normal. They're almost like television <laughs> sitcom normal in their, in their approach contrasted with Silas's family, which, you know, not that Silas's dad 
isn't a caring dad, but Silas's dad is also carrying around like a million magical secrets that he can't share with anyone. That family and that legacy has a very different structure. And then you've got Gunny, who didn't even know he was magical, Mm -hmm. but then discovers that he has a magical lineage, which he knows nothing about and still knows very little about. Yeah. Except that it's pretty important. Yes. Yeah, apparently. We have boxes now. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how I think of this. Like we have put our game inside of boxes. And while people might think that, well, why would you constrain your game like that? If you've been listening to this show long enough, putting something in a box just actually helps your creativity because it focuses how you're going to craft stuff. I mean, if you ever started a blank page with no ideas for what you're going to write, then you know what I'm talking about. The dreaded analysis paralysis. If you don't have any constraints at all, you have nowhere to go. And we've done this topic on the show. I've done this topic on Gnome Stew, but constrained creativity is actually better than unbridled, completely open creativity. (laughs) Yes. When you have walls, you have something to play off of. There's a reason why in in writing classes, they give you prompts sometimes to start writing. There's a reason for that because it's easy to like, okay, I'm going to start, like I read this thing and then I'm just going to start writing off of it. Bob's a good example of that. If we just told Bob to go write something right now, (laughs) he would lock the hell up. You get nothing. But if we told him to go write a specific thing, he would. He'd go crank right through it. All right, let's move on to how these things, and these are our talking points, how, we, how each of these things that I mentioned earlier are going to help us or maybe hinder us in crafting and playing our games. Because that's what this, this episode's all about, how this genre and theme stuff can really help you out and work for you. So let's talk about consistency of storytelling throughout a scene, a session, and a campaign. Jerry, do you have any thoughts that you want to bring forth about, about that idea and how theme and genre help with that? Well, I think they help uh, the player to build something that fits within the game itself. When you've got an idea of what your theme is and what your genre is, you can immediately start to make good choices. It gets rid of some of the analysis paralysis. And um, when in doubt, you just play to the theme. When you get to something that you're not sure about, or when you get to something where um, if the rest of the game is going in a certain direction and you're not sure what your character should do to do something interesting or or constructive in the game, just play back to the genre, play back to the theme, um, lean right back into it. As, as long as you're leaning on it, you're going to be engaged in the game. And generally, if you're leaning on it, you're creating something that other people can also play off of. So you're not just making the game about your character. Mm-hmm. Bill? You know, I'd say from the GMing side, what really works for you is when you're trying to come up with story ideas, knowing what the genre and the theme are helps immensely in crafting the uh the stories. So I knew I knew very early on I knew that there was going to be a prom episode in the campaign. Once I knew there was going to be high school, then I was like, oh well, what is iconic for high school? Prom. We're gonna do a prom. And I was I didn't rush to get that story out. I've been kind of, you know, letting the campaign calendar push it along. But then as things kind of started to form, it became really obvious that like, oh, this whole big thing with Mesame's soul has to happen on prom. That shit has to go down on prom night because it's it's just the most genre thing I could think of. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's really good. And I'll bring up another example where I where outside of Children of the Shroud, where I actually stumbled pretty hard and almost lost a campaign because of this was our cyberpunk red game where we decided initially to be like a nomad clan 
and it like just didn't work. The stories weren't quite working. The setting and the game didn't quite work with it. And we switched up and we kind of changed out the cyberpunk subgenre. It works a whole lot better. We went from being nomads where it was like, well, this book doesn't really like this book has nomads, but like it only details one city in the entire game. And if we keep leaving that city, what are we doing? Where once we turn the game around and put it back in Night City, it was like, oh, no, this all makes sense. Like, this is all going to line up nicely and um, work out again. So, yeah, I think that genre is like kind of like your rumble strip, right? Like you can tell like if your campaign's off because, you know, you're drifting from your genre or if you can't even stay on the road, there's something wrong. I don't know what I'm doing with that analogy, but no, it's a good, actually a good analogy. It's kind of like the curbs we talk about, like yeah. the games rolling, rolling down the street. And if you hit the curb, then, you know, rumble strip, same, same concept. Yeah. I think you also have to look and see what part of your game is actually a character in the game. Um, I remember when Luke Cage came out, Chris made the comment right off the bat that Harlem and the Luke Cage series is a character in that show. Well, I forgot I said that until you just said that. Oh, yeah. hundred percent, though. Yep. Night City is a character in Cyberpunk. And if you're yes. not in Night City, you're missing 50% of that game. I agree. You have to do a lot more work to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> so if you know what your genre and theme are. And some of them are part of the game that gives everybody something to play off of. Because as soon as we were back in Night City, everybody knew immediately what what their characters were going to do. Even the new characters was like, oh, okay, we're back to what I said a second ago. Whenever there's nothing going on, if Phil looks at somebody and says, okay, what are you going to do? Well, we're in Night City. There is something to do. We're in high school. We're going to do something high schoolish. We're either going to play off our relationships. We're going to play off going to school. We're going to play off magic or we're going to play off getting better at, at swashbuckling. We've got those genres and themes there. Whenever it's, what are you going to do next? You've got something to immediately reach out and grab. And there you go. Just pick one of those and interact with it immediately. And you're automatically part of the game. It actually takes some of the mental load off of the players. Yeah. What's the most genre thing I can do in this moment? Yep. For me, I'm going to talk scene, session, and campaign as a player and a game master. So mostly as a player, because we're talking about Children of the Shroud. Whenever there's a scene, I'm always thinking about what the genre is and what my, how my character fits inside of that genre. And I'm also thinking about the theme these days, like this idea of uh, growing up and maturing in this magical hidden society. I didn't even really consider the magical legacy thing, but it's, it's come up so many times that it, it, it's now obvious to me. But it's one of the reasons why Silas sometimes acts hot-headed because I'm a teenager, right? I need to make mistakes. If I just play it safe all the time, then I feel like I am missing the theme of the game which is i need to fail in order to learn so that i can become a better person that is a a pretty big story blow for how coming of age stories work so that has always been in my head i'm also thinking about that in the session and i'm also thinking about that in the campaign over the course of time like how is this character going to evolve over the course of time and then how they behave from story to story as they've learned things and yeah, that sounds like a lot, but that's how I like to play games. If you're just there to play this character and enjoy your your time at the table with your friends, you don't have to do any of this stuff. But if you're going to engage with these things, that's how I'm thinking about them. When I'm prepping as a game master, I will often write what I think the theme and the genre is at the top of my uh, my notes somewhere. or leave like a sticky note somewhere so that I'm always like referring to it. I can't forget about it then. And then I try to make that happen. My Legacy of the Archmage campaign is that for sure. Whenever I get stuck, I'm like, cool, what's the legacy thing? And then I just lean on that because legacy is a big theme of that game. 
Bob, did you have anything to say about this before we move on? Yeah, I was just going to say you you were spot on with the with Silas being hot headed part. I mean, teenagers are generally. I mean, there's always exceptions, but generally, teenagers are reckless, impulsive, emotional. If you're none of those things, sure, it might be okay, but it like it's you, you're you're doing yourself a disservice by not leaning into that stuff with your character to help create more drama and tension and fun. Really, honestly, that is the version of fun that we are talking about at this point, right? Like playing to these these genres and themes are the version of fun that we were talking about because it creates, as we sort of mentioned, this consistency across the game, which mm-hmm. to me feels better. I love that feeling of consistency across a story. I like when I watch it. I like when I see it in uh, in literature or in books or whatever, comic books, it doesn't matter what it is. I love feeling like the person knew what they were doing and they had this consistent thread that ties everything together. I sucked at being a teenager. <laughs> No, nah, it's okay, man. That, that, that's actually a thing. There's a lot of people that kind of probably say, man, I sucked at being a teenager too. Let's talk about scene setting. And this is mostly for Phil mm-hmm. because we don't get a chance to set a ton of scenes. We do sometimes. And when we have, we've, we've leaned into this, but mostly for Phil. How do you feel like scene setting fits into this genre theme discussion? Oh, I mean, I think it, I think it matters a bunch, right? Like the thing that I'm always looking for when I am picking out scenes for a story and these are usually things like the inciting scenes. These are, you know, like the climactic scenes and things like that. I'm looking for what's going to make the most sense for the genre. When you look at Smarty Pants, story three, I really just needed an opportunity for you to see what's his face take the magical Altoid. That's really the only thing that had to happen. We can never remember that guy's name. Never. <laughs> Uh, Lowell. Lowell. Because I always want to say Lloyd and it's always Lowell. No, it's Lowell. So all you, that's that's the only thing that had to happen was you needed to see Lowell take the mint to get the ball rolling. But then I think to the genre, what is taking a magical mint in a magical setting isn't going to seem that interesting, right? That's not going to be like the real draw. Seeing it happen in a mundane setting right? In the high school part, that's going to be more interesting. And then kind of rifling through and being like, okay, well, what kind of high school events are there where this could happen? Could be a homecoming, could have been um, a party, like any one of those things. But since you guys had set up the thing that you guys were on academic decathlon, it was easy for me to just pull that forward and be like, yes, that is a great venue to see him like basically juice up. Whereas Tisa is knowledgeable knowledgeable right for me i'm always thinking about that i'm always thinking for the story how do i get all three genres into the story now swashbuckling is relatively easy as long as there's a conflict you know as long as there's someone you can you can face down i can check the swashbuckling checkbox almost every time the other two are where i spend a little time thinking about okay what magical thing can happen with this high school thing right and that's how we got to it's a magical night being prom night because tracking down what's his face and going to the um prosperity mages like secret meeting or whatever i could have done that anytime i could have done that on any school day Mm -hmm. but the genre right what makes it feel more high school prom you put it on prom night and that you turn the dial to 11. it does for a reason right like 
you guys are heading into one of the major climaxes of the game. Stakes are up. What is the big stakes high school event? Prom. It also leads into the, if you think of swashbuckling as the Three Musketeers stuff, a lot of people don't think about the Three Musketeers stuff as being intriguing, but it is. Oh, yeah. And you put a bunch of people together, it makes it easy enough for people to slip away and go somewhere else for a little while, because mm-hmm. it happens all the time at prom. Yes. So it actually makes sense within the the, the, the genre of the game, too. That's another one of our, um, it's part genre, it's part theme as well, right? It's, but that hidden world. Yes. Like, of course, in the middle of prom, you're going to be able to slip out and go, you know, do this thing. Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to scene setting and, and playing inside of scenes too, the themes are really important for the players because it gives them the thing that they can latch on to. So for instance, we have set scenes in the Flameworth house. Like you set that scene, but we decided that that was the scene when we went to go talk to my dad, Silas's dad. And then the scenes after that, when we decided to try to commune with Mesame, we helped set those scenes and built them out based on the themes of this coming of age story kind of thing going on. Plus magical legacy. Plus that whole uh, unseen world, right? Like it's like almost an unseen world inside of the unseen world at times with how Silas's father operates. Mm-hmm. There's all that stuff going on. But those moments in the scene setting helped us, the theme of the genre helped us do that, helped us build those things out. I think anyway, like the magical legacy made it easy for me to be like, yeah, cool. There's like a ritual room in, our, in the basement of my house that we can use. Definitely. And, and of course there is, right? When you said that, like, I didn't push back on it. I was like, oh, of course you have a magical ritual room. Mm -hmm. In the same aspect, when you guys cast, I think in Smarty Pants, you cast a ritual in T's house and T's mom comes in and is like, oh, are you guys casting a ritual? Like, here's some cookies, right? Like, (laughs) like it's the, you know, it's, it's the flip of that. It's perfectly normal in that house to cast a ritual. Sure, sure. Oh, look, look, our boy's casting a ritual, right? Like it echoes things like, oh, he's, you know, has a first date or whatever. Like it's, oh, like it's first ritual, that kind of thing. So moving on to character choice, both for GM characters and player characters. I want to start with with Bob this time. How do you think genre and theme help you as a player character make choices in the game? Well, we've, we've already kind of touched on it before. We've had a couple of situations where it's like, all right, how should I handle this? Well, my dad is a renegade, all right? I've got this magical legacy of <laughs> this dude is out there and he's basically on the run from this magical society. I'm like, I'm going to do something kind of reckless that, you know, like a renegade might do, you know? Like, I let that inform my choices because it fits and it makes sense. Plus, it gives more opportunity for Phil to do things that fill in the story or to put pressure on certain things, um, create complications, those kind of things. I, I look at that almost every time I, my turn comes up, like, okay, where am I? What's going on in this particular scene? How can I leverage those things for this? What about you, Jerry? I think that generally it's helped me stay on track for what to make this character a little bit more realistic because we know that they're supposed to be a teenager and not making the optimal choice is part of what drives that character on. He doesn't have the legacy thing to fall back on as much as either two players do, but he does have the idea that he's supposed to be a teenager in this magical world and trying to come to grips with what it means to be both a teenager and to be part of this magical thing and where his place is in it. And so it's always easy to just step back into that. I find it interesting that I didn't even realize that both me and Bob took distinctions that 
uninformed magical legacy as a theme because mm-hmm. I'm son of yeah. a Flameworth and he's son of a uh, son of a renegade, right? Or sins of the father? Sins of the father. Yeah, yeah. sins of the father. Like, man, and I know I know T didn't lean into that one as much, but it really did bring that out. But you're a hundred percent right, Jerry. Like all of these things that that are happening to us, all these choices that we are making, definitely lean into this this whole idea of like coming of age. It's why. Strangely enough, like I think, I think theme is very important for the game master, and I think genre is very important for the game master and the players. But I think theme, in some cases, might be even more important for the players to think about and play off of if they want to have that kind of experience at the table. If they really want to have their characters dialed into what's going on in the game to to really think about these things. I mean, that's why Silas is was blowing up that whole uh, smarty pants story. Uh, I mean, his just his life is a wreck. Right. Like it's, it's a little better now, but it's been a wreck the entire time and it's, it's come out even though he's tried to keep it together. What about you, Phil, for your characters that you play as a GM? Uh, I love genre, right? So I think that comes as no surprise if you've heard me speak here and everywhere else. I love genre. So when I am picking out NPCs and stuff, I am leaning into every kind of trope, you know, I can find for characters. Both Samia and Jenna were, you know, mean girls, <laughs> right? I mean, they were like, yeah, they, they were just, they were mean girls, just magical mean girls. Bo's a manic pixie girl, right? Bo's a man. Now I can't take credit for Bo because I didn't create Bo. Those were created from the Slack room. And Andy specifically created Bo. Give credit where credit is due. You still have to bring them to life on the oh, recording, yeah. right? Like, so, yeah. I mean, she plays like a manic pixie girl. I don't think I read any of those, so I have no idea. She reads like a manic pixie girl, and then I just played her like a manic pixie girl. So, which was fine because that's another trope that, like, that's another trope I could get into. Yeah, and like Ash is like the cool, don't give a fuck character. Yeah, right? like the cool rocker, mm-hmm. the cool rocker girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So for me, for me, those are great because a lot of times when, um, if I have an NPC, especially if they're not going to be like reoccurring all the time, but they're just going to show up now and then. I need an easy way to grab onto those characters and handle them. And so by making them really tropey, it's easier for me to be like, okay, yes, this is the manic pixie girl character. Yes. Then you know what to do. I also like, they're not all necessarily tropey. Like Archie's just a normal kid for the most part. That's smart and 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 an internet mage. Yeah. A little bit nerdy, but not really. Right. He's a little bit nerdy, but not stereotypically nerdy. mm -hmm. Yeah. Even Victor, right? Victor plays like any number of um, TV, you know, pseudo bad guy, but not bad guy kind of characters. It's weird because when he's being my dad, he's fine. It's when he's not being my dad is when he's kind of sketchy. Yes. I see Victor being played by Charles Dance. Yeah. And done on purpose to make that uncomfortable, right? Because it's if he was one sided, it'd be real easy to just be mad at him for shit. Sure. But it's complicated in that, like. There are times where it's like, I mean, you're going to find out later you were mind wiped and you're going to have to deal with the, it's going to be ugly. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna, there's going to be some fallout from it, but yeah, there's times where, you know, he's your dad and he's, you know, worried about, you know, are you, are you taking on too much? You're running this like sting operation <laughs> for, for the veil. And you know, you're in up against some pretty big stuff and like, you know, he definitely has his concerns. Like, has he hung you out too far? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, he has. Right. So, you know, in those cases, he needs to be high school dad, but then he's also, you know, like master spy master. Mm-hmm. It's a fun juxtaposition because it's, you know, depending on context is when 
you find out which Victor, you know, is present. I will tell you, 25-year-old Silas, when he looks back on this, if he survives this situation, is going to be like, I don't know what the hell we were doing. We shouldn't have been doing that, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's like, I tell my parents that stuff on a mundane level all the time. Like, when I was like 13, they let me fly, like, connecting flights by myself on a plane. One time I got stranded for like six hours in Houston. I had to call my mom on like the calling card, but I was like, mom, like my flight's delayed for six hours. I'm going to just hang out here in the airport. Brutal. And my mom, of course, like how she kept her sanity together. There was no cell phones. There was no like instantly check where I am or call or whatever. There's no way to actually call me. I could call her. And somehow like now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, I would never let my kid do that. Mm. Yeah. So yes, I think Silas is going to have very much the, the same kind of experience where it's just like, I can't believe dad, you let me do that. And he'd be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> As we've learned from Ted Lasso, there are ways to do that safely by having like airport people keep an eye on your kids. Mm -hmm. Well, they have much better rules nowadays, yeah. right? Yeah. Back in the day, once I think you were above 12, they were just like, you're cool kid, right? And just, yeah, just go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. You know, have, here, have a cigarette and a scotch. I tell the story <laughs> all the time that when I was a kid, like up until God, I don't know what age we would just disappear every summer morning. My parents knew. I was somewhere in like a two mile by two mile block of wilderness. <laughs> I would eventually be home, but there were no cell phones. You didn't, they had no way of knowing where I was or what time I was going to be home. And you just, that was normal. It's a different time and we are way off the topic now, which is fun. No, because it comes back to the idea that part of what I think is interesting about this is that we, the three characters kind of treat the next weird thing that comes up as, oh my God. And then kind of a shrug of, well, that's kind of what's going to happen next. It's almost the norm for us. You know why Silas is like that? Because every time something like this happens, he goes to Miss Cortez or he goes to his dad and he's like, is this okay? And they're like, yeah, it's fine. Mm -hmm. That's why Silas is like that. I feel like you can tell me different, Bob. Yeah. I feel like Gunny doesn't know any better. Yeah, Gunny doesn't know any better. He's like, all right. I don't know why T is like that. T just assumes that this is what being in the Junior Guardians is like. Uh. Okay. Well, that was his original thought. And then once it became an obvious thing that, oh, this entire thing is not about stopping the cult of the dragon. This entire thing is about saving Silas's girlfriend. It's about saving Mesame. Yep. Yeah. That conversation you had with Mesame's mom about how far will you go? Mm -hmm. That's a conversation you don't want to have with T because T will go further to help Silas get his girlfriend back. Yeah, and then, then Silas just won't. Like, yes. He's just got lines that he won't cross. And that's why they're good. That, that's why they're such good friends to be around each other. Because mm -hmm. I think Silas, well, T would do that before. Now that Bo's there, there are things T won't do because he doesn't want to make Bo sad. Make Bo sad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is another good thing. That's why she's a good foil for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it makes the characters interesting. Yeah. Although Bo is, you know, pretty much down for adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me translate this into the next the next point, because I think it, it matters a lot for what we're talking about yeah. right now, which is like creating issues, problems, and dramatic moments at the table or in your prep, yeah. but at the table, because what you just said, Jerry, is like, Bo is now there. I'm making another problem for myself because I don't want to look bad in front of her. Mm -hmm. If Silas would have gone to T and, and Silas told T what Mesame's mom had said and where what his lines were, like T would have been like, hmm, now I can make another choice about like how I might want to behave in this situation. And if it ever came up, then you could actually see how that happens now it's only sort of come up for silas these choices one of them hasn't come out in the uh in the ap yet no. when this this episode will be up before that episode is up i think maybe 
But if it's not, then you'll see what that Silas made a choice mm-hmm. to do something that was not going over his lines. He stayed within his what he believes in. When it comes to creating issues in these like dramatic moments in prep and at the table, both for players and game masters, like Bob, tell me about it because you did a lot of that stuff early on. I mean, I've kind of touched on it already with, you know, making the choice to do something that felt to me like something a renegade would do, right? And not just that, but like you chose to have a renegade father. I remember that it was probably a workshop thing, but eventually like, yeah, that's that's totally because I want to have my dad be not around and then have his legacy be a problem for me. That's why you pick Sins of the Father. And that ended up being what became a renegade. Like he was a renegade in some way, shape or form. He was outside the law of the veil. Because originally he just wasn't around. Mm-hmm. And I wanted him to have been magical. And that's how I got into the thing. That's why I wanted that moment in the first session where I discover that I have magical abilities and stuff like that. Bill took that and ran with it that, oh, he ain't dead. He's still out there. He's a <laughs> renegade against the against this magical society. And I, I remember went, that conversation. Oh, Bill, Bill being like, well, he can, can, he, can he be not dead? And, and Bob was like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's <laughs> that makes it even more dramatic. It also gave me some options, right? Sure. At that point, I didn't actually know anything about about your dad, but I just was like, well, if he's alive, I have options. Might be something to to consider is that when creating these backstories, when creating stuff to play into the genre, leave some stuff open-ended for the GM. Yeah, absolutely. Set yourself up for something interesting, but leave it open-ended enough that you can play around with it later on. And that way you're not shutting doors. Or just be like, hey, Phil, uh, my girlfriend's soul is in my chest, and that's how I have ice powers. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, do you want it out? I think that was my first question to you was like, do you want it out? And you were like, of course I want it out. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like that, that's the, that's okay, the arc. Just I checking. want to save her. <laughs> I mean, as soon as you said that, that my girlfriend's chest is in your end, when you told us what happened, I think at that point that we freaking feel like, well, this is going to be one of the main story arcs of this adventure. I kind of figured it would be. I was trying to help. I mean, I was, if, if Phil was like, eh, I don't want to do that. I'm like, all right, I can come up with something else. But Phil was like, yes, that, that sounds great. We'll do that. I also know that's kind of that's the kind of bullshit drama that Phil actually likes. Like, oh, look, there's like a romantic connection and something terrible that could happen from it. Mm-hmm. And Phil is shaking his head at me right now. Yeah. 100%. That's 100% <laughs> yep. my bullshit. Yeah. Absolutely. I was like, hmm, what's the, what's the thing that I really want that I can make Phil be like, yes, give it to me. And I was like, that, that right there. So I'll say this, right? I, I had to, before I could write even the first adventure, I had to go and be like, all right, I need to write myself a whole bunch of what's going on here for Gunny's dad. Mm-hmm. Why does this axe show up? What's happening What that you can't see? What's happening that this axe passes from somewhere and arrives with you? And then while I was working on that, I was like, oh, and I grabbed Silas's stuff and I put it onto the page and I was like, hmm, all right. And then I wrote some more and I was like, well, I now think we have the campaign. Well, that's the pattern matching stuff, right? Yeah. It was the, I'm going to jam these things together because you both gave them to me and I liked both of them and I didn't need them to be like tied together. They could have just been two separate things we could have had going on. But all of a sudden I saw a connection between the two of them and I was like, all right, then. That is one of the things that you have a gift for as a GM. For as long as I've known you, you have done very well at taking two things and going oh if i put these two things together then that just turns everything up a notch that goes all the way back to um not to drift too far off topic but maybe this is a helpful tip back in the mid 90s when i was running conspiracy x the way i used to get ideas for for the missions was i would go to yahoo news 
that was a thing <laughs> back in the day. And I would go to the section on, it wasn't even just one section. I would go to Yahoo News and I would go through a couple sections, including the weird news stories. And I would take two to three stories that were completely unrelated. And I would just put them out in front of me and I'd be like, okay, now create a conspiracy around these three things. Explain how the stabbing at this college in New Jersey relates to the retirement of the, the guy who invented Prozac. And I forget what the third story was. And weaved a story, again, constrained mm -hmm. creativity, right? Weaved a story between those three things that not only became a mission, but became like a reoccurring um, campaign arc yeah. for, for that whole game. So that pattern matching thing is, is a really good skill to learn. Mm -hmm. And when you tie that to this genre and theme, right? Like you can just write your genre and themes down and you're like, cool. And then you write your characters down and kind of what their story threads are. And you say, how do I take two or three of these things and make them work together? Exactly. When I need a type of character on the fly, I quickly rifle through the genres of characters that you would typically see in high school or in an urban fantasy and then quickly like, you know, try to find one that matches the character that you guys need to talk to in the moment. Let me talk about how theme has impacted some choices that I've made for Silas in the game. And I'll specifically talk about Smarty Pants because it's the story where Silas went off the deep end, right? I was angry and, and upset and it all culminated in, in that story of me being like off kilter and not okay. If we are playing a game where I am not playing a high schooler and we're playing a game where it's not a coming of age story, I probably don't make those choices. If I'm an adult like adventurer and I'm still having kind of a, a trash life, like that might manifest in different ways. Like maybe I'm a drunk. Maybe I am a bit of a rage berserker, but that manifests in a different way because we're playing in a different setting, right? If it's a fantasy adventure story and we're in a fantasy world, maybe that just means I'm much more brutal with my enemies. There's a whole bunch of different ways as soon as you start changing these things of how the choices that you'll make as a character are impacted. Even in like this particular game, if we're not high schoolers, but adults doing this, I probably don't act that way mm -hmm. because it's unprofessional and I'm probably working a job of some sort and I don't want to lose my, my job or, or my chance at income as an adult working in that space. So because it is high school, because it is, I'm playing a high schooler and because it's a coming of age story, I'm given some license with the permission of the other players at the table, which I had to make those angry choices and start fights, albeit small ones with my cohorts, my compatriots, my, uh, the people that eventually become my friends. Mm -hmm. So like that is a, that's a, to me, an example of how you can create issues like me being mad at Gunny, me being mad at T in those moments that let me create on the fly dramatic moments, problems, and issues during play that I think made the game more interesting. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. And I think that when we talk about teenage and high school, right, impulsive and bad decisions are, are one of the genre tropes, right? Making impulsive and bad decisions, thinking with your feelings, you know, so I loved it because you weren't careful. You weren't like, measured and you know thoughtful and stuff like that you blew up you created the opening for me for the scene with Erlis when you just got out of the car and were like i'm going i'll get my own ride home mm -hmm. it's such a teenage thing to do to just be like you had a disagreement with your friends and you're like i'm getting out of the car i'll, I'll just get my own ride home and just like walk off and that's what the genre of the theme did it allowed those moments to take place i think yeah absolutely mm -hmm. last thing Let's talk about rules, designing rules, designing house rules to get the right feel for your game and how genre and theme impact that. I mean, we have dueling mechanics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need yeah. them. 
we have ritual mechanics from magic. We have magical mm-hmm. fighting mechanics, essentially, like how we can cast spells and mm-hmm. things like that. We built all those things to, to fit inside of this. And I really try pretty hard to make them, I mean, Cortex does a lot of the work for me, to make them feel like high schooler type stuff. Like you can go big and make mistakes and it won't destroy you. That's, that's a thing I think about, about high school stuff. Like you can make mistakes and it's not going to destroy your life. Right. There are some games and some like settings and genres where like you make a mistake and you're just dead. Like you think of horror, like you make a mistake, you die. Yeah. You think of like a, a, a drama thing at some time. Sometimes you make that mistake and that, that relationship is just done. Oh yeah. hundred percent. But when it comes to high school stuff, that's not always the case. In fact, it's very rarely the case. Usually the whole, one of the things about high school is like you're allowed to make mistakes so that you can come back from them. But when designing these rules for these games, it was, I was trying to go with some of that stuff. Cortex does a lot of it for us because failing a role doesn't mean we lose usually. It just means things get harder or we have to like sure. overcome it. Mm-hmm. The magic stuff, right? Like we designed magic rules. We have magic rules all over the place. We have the conceptual magic, the, uh, the elemental magic, the martial magic, the ritual magic. It's everywhere. So I think what's interesting though, and this goes with theme, right? In our game, magic isn't inherently evil or dangerous, right? Like there are other games where dabbling in magic can be very dangerous. If we were playing more of a um, Lovecraftian or Cthulian kind of high school game, casting some of these ritual spells might have come with serious consequences. True. But because that isn't part of our tone, that wasn't part of the game, our ritual magic thing is pretty straightforward. There's no consequences, like no serious consequences for it. There's sometimes a roll or give up a thing or have to do a thing, but it's not dark. There is a potential consequence in where we could strain or break the shroud. Yes, but even that, yes. you don't get into a lot of trouble. That goes along with the, the genre because it's a hidden magical world. Yep. Yes. It's a good mechanic that sits on top of the genre of the game, right? It reinforces the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, um, we use relationships specifically. To ha- and ha- made sure that some of them were magical and some of them were high school to fit once again our genre and our and our themes of this coming of age story without in- even intending it. Oh, our attributes. Our attributes are very much in uh, line with the genre of the game. Like it's all very intentional, right? Of all my favorite things in Cortex, the prime sets are I think one of my favorite things because the prime sets do so much to inform what's going on in the game, like. Is this a veil versus is this a magic versus is this a school kind of role? Well, I think that that thing that you just said right there to me has been one of the most interesting things about the game that we designed because there was a lot of confusion about what they meant. And I was like, don't think of them as like a stock standard thing. Think of them as an approach. Like, how do you feel about Mm -hmm. this? How are you approaching the thing that you're doing? Exactly. And once we got to that point, it became... It's muddled, but not, right? Because it informs character choice instead of, in, in, instead of being just a straight mechanical thing. In my um, Long Live the Queen game with Senda, right, one of the skills in the game is seduction because, you know, we're playing it like a filthy romance novel. Sure thing. But three of the approaches are love, lust, and duty. And you can seduce someone under all three of those conditions, depending on who it is, right? Like if you are doing it specifically to get information out of somebody... For a mission, that's duty. If you're doing it to hook up, that's possibly lust. And if it's, you know, with someone in a more established relationship, it could be love. The same thing goes true with fighting. The fighting skill relies on the same three, on those same approaches as well. Like you could be fighting to defend someone. You might be doing it with love. 
But if you're on a mission, you might be doing it with duty. And if you're doing it for revenge, it might be just for lust. Could be. What if you're doing it out of boredom? Could be, could be lust as well. That would be lust. That'd be, that'd be emotion. So probably lust. Yeah. But what I think is interesting about that is it then colors the narrative because you start asking like, is this really a school thing? You know, or is this a magic thing? Is this a veil thing? Is it jock, right? Because when we say jock, like that has a, I'm, I'm expecting that that's using force and body and imposition as opposed to smarts where, you know, you might be more calculating, you know, your cuts and things like that might be more tempered because you're using your brains. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. And we did the same thing in, in Ox as well. We did. I honestly think that the children, the shroud stuff, aside from the dueling rules, are probably a better set of design rules for the game that we are playing. I love the Ox game and I love the characters and stuff. And I like that science, that science role, but it needs, it needs some work. Well, that was our first child. Sure. We made plenty of mistakes on that first child. Do we still love that child? Of course. Did we improve a few things parenting when we, when we made our second child? Yes, Yes. of course Mm -hmm. we did. Absolutely. This is a, this is a weird analogy. Like I I get what you're saying, man, this this one, this one's a little bit weird. Children of the shroud. Well, I'm an only child. child. I don't actually know if that's true. I can say that comfortably. The rest of you all have siblings, so I don't know if that's true or not. If what's, if what's true? <laughs> you do your best with that first one. You get all your bumps and you kind of work them out as you get like down the chain with kids. You got two kids. I have two kids and for sure that happened. Yeah, see? <laughs> Here you go. I think it's important to think about your theme and your genre when you're designing rules. It helps a lot. It helps reinforce a lot of the stuff that we already talked about. When those two aren't in alignment is when the game starts to feel really weird. It's the reason why, and we've, you know, we've begged on this for you know, almost a decade, but it's the reason why the original vampire game feels so weird is because the mechanics and the genre don't line up correctly. Yeah. The mechanics come off like you're playing like a superhero game where, you know, you got strength and, you know, strength and speed and stuff like that. And the genre of the game is supposed to be this like brooding, emotional, bleak landscape kind of thing. And very little of the mechanics handle that. I'm with you. Like I, I think the um the descent into darkness is though is is a terrible mechanic in that game and how it's implemented. Correct. Because it doesn't it doesn't get you there fast enough. Like you can do some pretty terrible things. I feel like that game enables people to do terrible things, and I don't know if I like that so much. Well, I'm with you because my experience with it is you will lose your first couple points of humanity very quickly, but then there becomes a point in the in the humanity system where it's super hard to lose a point again, which then allows you to start doing some really heinous shit if you're comfortable having like a four humanity. Yeah. That's not, it's not for you. It's not, it's not for you, Jen. Right. Yeah, anybody gets that. No, and now. I think that's part of the, I yeah. think that's part of the problem with it. Like the system in concept makes sense, right? The system's like, Oh, if you do bad things, you lose humanity. You lose too much of your humanity and your character becomes, you know, this monstrous NPC that the GM gets to play. And then what you find out is like early on, you can lose humanity for almost like any small, like you fed on the wrong person, lose some humanity. I feel but, like if you just cut the bottom four points off that and been yes, like, it, then it would be way scarier and be like, cool. Now you actually have to struggle. Yeah. When you don't have to darkness. commit an atrocity, like, yeah. like, you know, to lose the last couple of points, you have to commit like atrocity level stuff. And it's like, even players like, will at some point bottom out and govern themselves mostly like, there's the rare couple of players that are like i'm cool with this 
there's a rare couple of players where I'd have like, you know, hallucinations where I'm like, you are losing it. Yeah. Just so that you know, you are losing it. That's, I think that's enough vampire, the masquerade talk, but the, the point stands like yeah. I, the, the game, the mechanics might not match up with the game quite perfectly. I don't have a, I don't have a dog in that fight. So I haven't read new vampire. Not really. So I don't really know if they fixed any of that stuff. So maybe they, maybe I know they, they did. did some fixes to it. I just don't know what they are, but I'd be wor- I would be willing to go check out what um, V5 did to address some of those things. We are talking about the green book. Yeah. The old the green book. The old don't, green yeah. book. Yep. Just to be very clear about this. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that have had a lovely oh, time with that game. We did. That's fun. We did. We just ignored most of the rules. Like, yeah. And I know <laughs> there's tons of people out there that love playing the LARPs and um, there, there's no shade on that. I just, from a, from a pure mechanic standpoint, it seems, it seems problematic. It seems like it doesn't fit like Phil said. Yeah. It, when those two things are incongruent, you will feel it. And then you'll just do one of two things. You'll either dump the game or start house ruling it into shape or you change what you're playing to fit the, the game better. Yeah, and there's a ton of games I could talk about that I've had to do some of that stuff with, and I don't mind because I like people like playing those kind of games. Like mm-hmm. I've done it a ton with Fifth Edition D and D, and not because there's anything really wrong with Fifth Edition D and D. It's just after I played the first forty sessions, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of bored. I should just start messing with the rules. Just start fucking with this thing. Yeah. Now. Yep. Is there anything else anybody wants to say about genre and theme in in this particular game or any other particular games before we uh, get on out of here? No, I mean, I, I mean, I just love them, right? I, I love genre. I love theme. So like you mix them together, it's like chocolate and peanut butter for me, man. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. As I am on this storytelling kick for how role-playing games go for me, at least at my table. I, I love all this stuff. All right. Well, thanks everybody for uh, being here tonight. Thank you for listening to Misdirected Mark Plays. Now let's do some Patreon shout outs before we get out of here. Let's start with the Royal Court, the Polish Ogre, who's our very own Polish Ogre. Lars Henrik Evjan, the Lord Out of Time. Jim, the Royal Merchant Emeritus. Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress. JT Evans, the Queen's Librarian. Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies. John Carney, the Court Necromancer. Craig, the Lord of One Name. Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia. Eric Bontz, the Weregator. Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Now we have some other patrons who are about to get their shout out. John, Chris Constantine, Miko Froelich, Eric Simon, Athelus, not that Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brentley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, The Deliverator, he belongs to an Elite Order, a hallowed subcategory, Bridget, Kubanu, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting this show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com MMP. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud. That includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, you can check out a bunch of other podcasts on misdirectedmark.com. There's Pandas Talking Games with Phil and Senda. They talk about a whole bunch of games, so it's like card talk for your role-playing game. You can go check out the Gnomecast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to try to avoid being thrown into the stew by giving quality game mastering advice. Or you can listen to Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so they might as well record it. Thank you for joining us. This has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. 
We out.